Welcome to Leaning Forward, where experts come together to make schools better for, for all, all of us. us. Brought to you by the California Collaborative for Educational Excellence in partnership with educators everywhere. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Leading Forward. On our show today, we have Dr. Heather Latimer. Dr. Latimer is the Dean for the Lurie College of Education at San Jose State University. And prior to that, she was at the University of San Diego and also worked in K-12 education, both at the San Diego Unified School District as well as in San Jose. And on our show today, we'll talk a little bit about leadership, well-being, and equity as it applies to this very challenging time that our leaders are facing right now. Often this time has been referred to as volatile, uncertain, complex, with just so much ambiguity. And Dr. Latimer, can you share with us and our leaders and listeners a little bit about how do we lead forward in a strategic way from this point forward? Given the cards that we've been dealt, is there literature or research that we can lean on? Yeah, I think that if we look at the, the research literature that extends not just to this time period, which is still pretty, very much developing to understand what's happening now, but more broadly, we know, and, and not just around school leadership, but around leadership more generally, we know that when there are these inflection points, these moments of crisis, these moments of intense change, that can produce kind of two responses in people. It's in, in many ways, it's either the fight or flight response that we talk about on a biological instinct. So some people hunker down and try to get through. Uh, that would be the flight response of trying to just make it through to tomorrow. And then some people really look at it and say, how do I use this moment to try to address some of these larger challenges? And I think we, we are seeing some of that. The challenge that I, that I encounter when I'm talking with superintendents right now is that there's so much pressure on the day-to-day. -day. And we spent a lot of the summer trying to figure out how to come back to face-to-face -to -face when the numbers then went in the opposite direction of what people were hoping. And consequently, we had to have a hard pivot again in the fall to say, oh, well, I guess we're not coming back face-to-face. -face. We're going to stay in the remote conditions for many of our students and for many of our districts and families. And consequently, we had to figure that out all over again. Now it feels like there is a, a bit more of a long-term thinking. There's a bit more of the recognition that we need to bring some of our most vulnerable children back to campuses. And there's certainly equity issues around how to do that, both for the children, but also for the staff about who's coming back and what conditions allow them to come back. But I think one of the things that, that I've been thinking a lot about in conversations with school and district leaders is the reality that in order to do even that idea of bringing people back to campus and doing it in a way that is prioritizing issues of equity, prioritizing issues of student need, student demand and family demand, that it potentially pulls on some of the the structures in a way that is a stress test. So if that kindergarten teacher is in a high risk group in terms of their own health, maybe they shouldn't be coming back to campus, but those kindergarten kids 
probably do need to be back on campus, especially in a school system where we have a lot of low income kids. And we know that if they're not able to get back to campus and get those early reading skills in early in their primary years, then they have long term risks associated with their their future education and health outcomes. But that kindergarten teacher is probably not the right person to bring back because they're going to be at risk themselves. So how can we look at who's the credential teacher who can come in? How can we rethink staffing in meaningful ways? And how do we rethink the way in which our unions and our districts work together to address some of these questions? And some districts and unions are doing that beautifully and some are struggling. And it tends to be about the relationship that pre-existed and the trust that pre-existed this crisis as to whether or not that's something that we're able to sit at the table, proverbial sitting at the table, because it's actual virtual table, of course, and really address. So what do we know and what can we leverage around change management, how change happens that can strengthen these situations, right? As you mentioned, there is really no teacher prep, leader prep program that says, and this is what you do in a pandemic, but there are best practices and research around leading in change or just leading and setting visions. What are those high level pieces that we know that leaders should be making sure that they're doing as they're working with their teams to, to prepare for whatever the future might be? Yeah, I think that the number one piece that we know about leadership generally is it requires that, that set of very clear priorities to be set, articulated, repeatedly articulated, and stressed across all decision-making. And that's not just decision-making at the cabinet level or at the high level, I'm going to set a strategic plan and put it out there and put it on the website. It needs to be part of the day-to-day decision-making. So how is the decision I'm making around budgeting? How is the decision I'm making around hiring? How is the decision I'm making around busing and how to do transportation in this context, if at all? How is that impacting our decision-making around how to use facilities, how to engage with parents, how to structure curriculum? All those pieces need to come from that common framework and where we're seeing success right now, both in terms of managing the response, but also in terms of leaning into the idea that there are lessons to be learned from this. And there are some districts, there are some schools where we're seeing real strength of we're going to come out of this in some ways better positioned to support our student success than we went into it. Say more about the lessons learned. What are the lessons that you and your faculty are seeing or even that you're hearing within uh, the greater community that people are kind of going, oh, yes, like this is important. I want to carry this forward. Yeah. So certainly one of the things that we're seeing both at the university level and at the K-12 level is a better understanding of what it truly means to support and nurture children and students. The focus for so long has been on those learning outcomes. And don't get me wrong, learning outcomes are important. And and certainly that's the point of school. And in order to make sure that students are learning, in order to make sure that they're successful, we need to recognize that they are complex human beings. And we need to provide them with the, the space and the support to learn, and we need to recognize the joy and the strength that they bring. So where we see lessons just take off and succeed is when 
are, we're tapping into students' interests and into their lived experience. If we're trying to, to keep to the textbook as the, the primary way that we're communicating, if we're trying to march students through a scope and sequence, it's really challenging and it's always really challenging but it's particularly evident right now that's just not working for too many of our students and too many of our families. And so looking at how do we tap into the students' interests, priorities, lived expertise, how do we bring that into the conversation? How do we open up spaces to have conversations so that we can get to that math problem or the, the uh, history or science problem, but recognizing that we need to start by asking the question, are you okay? Uh, and we see that with our university students as well. You know, this, the, the faculty who open up their classrooms, their Zoom classrooms 15 minutes before class and just do a check-in have much greater success with their students in terms of creating the environment and the, the conditions to be able to have meaningful conversations, to be able to have opportunities to connect. And, and then when they have that community, when they have that space of trust, it becomes much more of a successful learning environment. So I think that's one piece. I'm not a fan of the, the whole child language. I think that it can be problematic and, and not as not fully representative of the diversity of students' lived experiences. It tends to come from a very white and middle-class lens. But that idea that is undergirding the whole child concept of we need to look out for their physical, their emotional, their mental health, and also their sense of identity, uh, their community, that all needs to go into supporting children's learning is an important and really tangible lesson that is being taken away from this time period and I think can help to guide us moving forward. So I would say that's one. Another area is the relationship with families. And to some extent, that is a partner with the idea that we have to look out for all aspects of our children's lived experience and engage those aspects in their learning. The experiences that we're seeing for teachers and uh, um, principals and counselors and faculty at the university level to find new ways to engage with families. I've never met a parent that would say, uh, I don't care about my child. I've certainly met parents who are frustrated and that's regardless of socioeconomic background with their child at times, uh, but that is coming from a space of caring. It's coming from a space of, I want my child to succeed. I want my child to have the best opportunities that are available to them. And so I think our structures have not recognized that. And we know that there's a ton of research that's out there on this. If you're saying that the open house is going to be available at six o'clock on a Tuesday night, guess what? You're not gonna get a lot of people. And that's because people are, are working. It's because people have families with other needs and demands. It's because often the school system has not been very welcoming. And it's because some people are fearful of going into the, the school and because of legal status, because of their own past educational experiences sometimes. And going into a school, even to support their child can re-traumatize them because of the trauma that they suffered themselves. And so this has been a time period that because of the very nature of how class is working, teachers are getting to know parents and parents are getting to know teachers in, in a much more human way uh, than happened previously. And there's a bond that's built between parents and educators that I think in some communities existed before, but was more the, the exception than the rule.
And I think there's a recognition that we need to tap into that relationship. Every parent that I talk to says, we do not want to be this intimately involved with our child's day-to-day education moving forward, if possible. But there is certainly a recognition that we need that more open and honest communication much more readily. And so around this lesson learned on focusing not just academic outcomes, but actually various components of our students and around the lesson of family engagement, relationships, building that partnership, how do you see teacher and leader preparation programs continuing to bring these lessons forward? What's your hunch about how this will impact the fabric of how we prepare educators? Yeah, certainly for our student teachers in our education prep programs right now, they are living that experience of working collaboratively with their teachers and sometimes independently uh, because as teachers are breaking into smaller groups, because I don't know if you've had the experience of 35 children on a Zoom at the same time, but it is uh, uh, very challenging to say the least. So Although initially some districts had told us that they didn't want our student teachers because they felt like they've got enough. When we pointed out that, gee, it could mean that you could split that class or, and that could be both physical and virtual to allow for the social distancing when people come back, there was, oh yeah, maybe we'll take some of the student teachers. So a lot of our student teachers are working with small groups more intensely than they might otherwise if they were in a physical environment. And consequently, they're experiencing a lot of this work with our uh, children and families directly. They're understanding that we need to recognize and support um, and tap into the lived experience of our children, uh, look out for their mental health, look out for their physical health, and just do the the community building, uh, uh, student engagement on a daily basis as a part of what they do. And our faculty, along with faculty across the country, are doing research on this work. And so I'm actually pretty excited about a lot of the research that we're, we're likely to see come out of this time period, because I think it will give us some guideposts. We're tapping into youth participatory action research in really meaningful ways. So we've got a group of faculty who are working with teachers and their high school students at Watsonville High School to uh, um, capture how internet and Wi-Fi is used and the impact not only on the, the students' educational experiences directly, but also on younger siblings' educational experiences, older siblings in some cases, and college experiences, and then work experiences for family members, as well as access to healthcare. So really being able to, to engage our youth as experts. And I think that's one of the other things I'm excited about for this time period is that it's in some ways recognizing that because this is such an unprecedented time, there are no experts. And I realize that's an overbroad statement, but how education responds to COVID-19 is something that we're all figuring out together. Uh, So being able to find ways to engage in community-based research uh, that that engages our children and our families as uh, co-researchers in that work is really important. So the other thing I was going to say is that for us, we were in the midst of already launching what we're calling the Emancipatory School Leadership Program as a way to shift the way in which we think about training uh, school leaders. The the fact that it launched in the middle of all this really turned out to be serendipitous. Uh, Students in this Master's in Emancipatory School Leadership Program 
are partnering with a county office of education to do uh, analyses of uh, um, how districts are responding to both issues of equity and the COVID response, providing insights to and essentially acting as consultants to the districts, providing recommendations, analyzing the data, seeing how those recommendations play out, both in terms of the politics of implementation, but also in terms of the impact on student experience and family success, and then being able to to feed that back into the district in the next set of recommendations. And that lived case study experience is something that is certainly not new, but it is not the norm of how we prepare leaders. And what we're seeing is right now, it makes a ton of sense, but it's not just this moment. That kind of work needs to be part of our preparation generally. So in terms of how we're thinking about shifting the the work of educator preparation, it's both the what we're doing and what we're teaching, but it's also the how. And so you know, how we're involving our students in the work and how we're engaging them in assessing rather than just having the, here's the information, here are the theories, go practice them, involving them as co-researchers, collaborators, and co-creators has been a really important piece of this time period. And I, I hope we'll stick more broadly. So if there's a school or system leader that's listening to this right now and is thinking like, I I really want to hear from students. I want to engage in some youth participatory action research. Where should they start? I would say a two-pronged answer to that. So one is starting by thinking within your own institution of how you're currently engaging students. Is it the I'm asking students to follow, fill out an annual survey and what happens to that data? at the end of that survey, which is the standard way. And there's, you know, it's a good starting place, but then the question becomes, all right, so you get this data at the end of the year from families or from students. What do you do with that information? Who gets to see that information? Do you put together focus groups to really bring together students if it's been a student survey or bring together families if it's been a family survey and and try to make meaning of this? And who who owns the data and gets to decide what next steps might be based on that data. And then thinking beyond the survey of how often do you have conversations with students? How are they involved in the decision-making processes at the K-12 level, at the, uh, at the classroom level, at the school level, at the district level, and really wanting to make sure that there is that regular communication and that you're bringing challenges to them, right? I think that the norm has been when there's a problem and students or families are unhappy, then it comes to the district officer, whether that's the superintendent or the school board. But there's so much expertise. And as I mentioned earlier, one of, one of the things we're seeing, nobody's an expert in COVID response right now. We're all figuring it out. The students have expertise. So figuring out how to provide the forums for students and families to provide their insights, to respond to the questions that are vexing for our superintendents, for our principals, is something that I think can be done independently of universities. And (laughs) universities can, if districts are interested, play a critical role in supporting that work. And that can be by saying, we're going to provide some trainings and some supports around how to engage 
students as co-researchers into questions that are challenging. It can be giving the, the uh, questions to the universities and asking faculty and university students to help do the research and involve the families, involve the students in that process. It can be asking universities to, to come and essentially open up your data and share and think about what are the questions that we might want to research together so that it's not a sense that it's the university coming and peering in and saying, this is what you're doing wrong. Here's the question we want to research, which I think is why some districts are nervous because universities have not always been good about being good partners in that work. Sometimes we're coming and it's sometimes the university, it's sometimes an individual within the university who's coming with that lens of there's a problem. And sometimes there are problems, but we have to approach it from the standpoint of we are in this and want to address these questions and concerns and highlight these strengths together. And I think if we can get to that point, then there is great opportunity for uh, finding some collaborative expertise and tapping into the collective understandings and expertise of our children, our families, our university and school-based experts and our larger communities. I love that. And, you know, what you're really saying makes me think of like this idea of appreciative inquiry, right? Like, how do you just ask questions and be curious? Now, John Dewey, going way old school in education, (laughs) John Dewey talks about, right, learning does not come from experience. It comes from reflecting upon experience. And we've got a lot to reflect on in 2020. Is there one reflective question or mantra that you could leave listeners with? Like, what's that reflection piece, that mantra that we need to be asking ourselves to truly take the learning from this year that was hard, but take that learning forward into future school years? Yeah, I think that the challenge that I'm having in coming up with that is, I've heard a lot of people say, what's the silver lining? And that's, you know... Are there things? Sure. Have I enjoyed cooking more meals with my family? Sure. Um, Am I saving money from not eating out? That that tends to be the level of silver linings is it's the the fairly shallow understanding. Um, I think that's kind of where we are right now is that we, I don't know how many people really had the chance to not get off the day-to-day response, the crisis response and have that opportunity to reflect. And particularly in California where we've seen not just uh, the COVID crisis, but the wildfires and and the air quality, the economy that is still continuing to struggle very significantly, and the racial justice movement that is uh, um, so critically important and is taking energy and time and focus and how do we respond to this and how do we recognize that this is something that that isn't going away. It's something that needs to inform our policies, our practices, our daily lives uh, to rethink how we take action, how we do our work uh, and try to dismantle, uh, at least better dismantle, because we certainly have not achieved it to this point, the white supremacy culture that has dominated our educational systems and institutions. So, you know, I think everybody's so much in the trying to, and and that's a big question too, right? And that requires really being able to step back and think and understand. And I'm just not yet seeing that many people are at that stage where they're able to. 
I think all the, the pieces that you've just said for various reasons make it hard to reflect. From what you've seen, is there some really promising research that folks should keep an eye out? I know we don't have all the answers right now, but there's some really great research happening. Who do we look for and keep an eye on coming out of this year for lessons learned and things that we can take into the future? So some things have started to emerge. I haven't yet seen any individual come out with research that I would say is at the level that is going to really drive us forward. I think that rather than look to the individual, it's about the schools of research that I would really look at. And so I would look at schools of research that focus on critical race theory or are grounded in critical race theory and and looking at the implications for uh, not just the the inequities that have been exacerbated and exposed by this time period, but that also point to how we can truly change systems in order to become the diverse, inclusive, and equitable space that we, we claim that we want to be. I would look at, I think, as we mentioned earlier, the, the research that is community engaged, that's, that involves our children and our families as co-researchers and the process that involves teachers and uh, educators who are classroom-based as experts in the the research in terms of how it is approached are people that I would want to learn from. And I I would favor those more human elements over the research that I know is coming and is also interesting, but is the the kind of technical technology expert, you know, there's a lot of how do we use technology better? And that is an interesting conversation of how do we use technology better? And certainly I hear a lot of superintendents uh, and a lot of uh, uh, tech people in the Bay Area here talking about, you know, we're never going to go back face to face and it's all going to be, and at least not fully face to face is what some of the claims are. And it's going to completely upend how we do things. But that's the how, and it's the why that matters. We have to look at the research around the why uh, and the who, you know, who's benefiting right now. Uh, So research that is focused more on that abolitionist teaching work, uh, on Bettina Love's work, uh, is somebody who is framing a lot of the, the work that's being done by younger researchers. And I think that's the work that I'm looking forward to seeing come out of this time period, because it, it is that piece. It's the, how do we live our priorities as researchers who claim to care and, and educators who claim to care about equity, but just looking at it from a technical or a technological stance isn't going to do it. We have to have that understanding of what culturally sustaining pedagogy looks like. We have to have an understanding of what race does in terms of how it frames our work and how it frames our systems and our structures and what we need to do to undo the the centuries, millennia of racism that is permeating all of our systems and structures and leading to so much inequity. And I guess that's to me what it, it would be about is it comes back to the, who are your students? Who are your families? How are they impacted by this? What have you learned? It's kind of that, what is the ideal and how do you get there? Mm-hmm. 
the <laughs> Boyatzis work, right? Around like, yeah. uh, I what's that ideal future state? What's the future desired state that we're driving towards versus like just yeah. trying to claw our way out of a hole? But also who's determining that ideal? Yeah. Because if it's me sitting there and thinking, well, gee, this would be great for everybody. That's not okay. Because I look at the world through the, I, I, as much as I try to, to have a greater understanding, try to have a more diverse understanding of the lived experiences of so many, I can't. I'm in my body and in my experience. And so yeah. finding ways to collaboratively understand what that ideal can look like and how it might be different for different people mm -hmm. is an important piece that I think will require school leaders to have both the time and space to, to ask those questions. And it will require the political courage to recognize that asking those questions and honestly admitting that you don't have the answers is actually a source of strength rather than weakness. And that truly strong and effective leaders are willing to tap into that larger expertise and, and facilitate the conversation rather than assume that we have the expertise ourselves. Thank you for joining us today and for sharing your thoughts with our listeners. for listening and thank you for making education better for, for all of us. Leading Forward is a companion to the CCEE Field Guide for Accelerating Learning, Equity and Well-Being and produced by Copernicus Solutions. For more information, visit www.ccee-ca.org.